0: If you have your Bibles, grab them, please uh, go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 18 uh, through 25, through the end of the chapter. Uh, We need to jump right in. We have a lot to cover today, probably more than we have time for, but that's never stopped me before. So we'll see, we'll see how far we get. So in this section uh, of Peter's letter, again, to this scattered church throughout the Roman Empire that is undergoing and beginning to undergo, they're in the beginning stages of undergoing uh, some immense persecution that is only going to increase over the next couple of years um, under kind of the uh, terror-filled reign of Nero, who was the emperor at the time. Uh, but in this section of the letter, uh, Peter is now applying the gospel to every area of life. In the, in the first one and a half chapters, he's laid out the gospel over and over again, just good news after good news after good news after good news of who we are in Christ, of what Christ has done of everything that he has done for us and all the precious promises that we have to live this life in the power of his spirit. But now he's just, he doesn't want us to miss any of the connections. And so now in this section of the letter, he's beginning to apply it to different areas of life, of life. Last week, we saw that he applied it to the area of politics and government rulers and how we're to submit to authorities, because ultimately, Jesus is king. And he's in charge of every other earthly king that there ever may be. He raises them up, he tears them down, both kings and nations, and nothing is outside of his control. And so we can rest in that fact. Next week we're going to talk about husbands and wives and the way that the gospel applies within, within marriage. Uh, but in all these things, kind of the strand that's woven through all of it um, is, is, is applying the gospel to all these contexts, but doing it in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty. And the specific context that Peter is going to bring to our attention this morning uh, is that of servants and masters servants and masters uh, now immediately this creates a little bit uh, of of attention because if you guys are familiar at all um, uh, with the context and even just some of the original language it 's not just servant it's it 's slave is, is the is the most literal translation however. Uh, when we talk about slavery in the Bible, and the Bible talks about slavery, although there were very wicked types of slavery, um, usually when it's talking about slavery, it's not talking about slavery in the same way that we think of slavery uh, because of the DNA w- w- in which we live and because of our context in America um, and the wicked, 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 wicked uh, transatlantic slave trade um, that, uh, that enslaved uh, millions uh, of African Americans. Um, uh, it was absolutely wicked and it was wrong uh, and it's something that uh, is a huge stain on our history uh, as a people. Um, And so immediately here as we jump into the context, I just want to take a second and just address that because this is one of the uh, uh, kind of accusations that gets leveled against the Bible many times by the world is that the Bible somehow is forced slavery and I want you to know that nothing could be farther from the truth. Um, throughout history, the people that have fought to bring down slavery—men like William Wilberforce, who uh, labored for close to fifty years um, in in England uh, to uh, through—he was a, um, a member of Parliament uh, to bring down um, and to make illegal uh, the, the slave trade. And if he would have never done it in England, it, it, there's a good chance that uh, it wouldn't have happened, that the next domino would not have fallen in America. Uh, But he worked for 50 years. He was a devout Christian, and he worked for almost 50 years uh, to see slavery abolished um, in England because he knew that it was not in alignment with God and with his word. Um, Wayne Grudem, in commenting on on this passage, He's an excellent theologian. He says, It must be remembered that the first century slaves were generally well-treated and were not only unskilled laborers, but often managers, overseers, and trained members of the various professions—doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians, skilled artisans. There was extensive Roman legislation regulating the treatment of slaves. They were normally paid for their services uh, and could expect eventually to purchase their freedom— he goes on, he says, so a word stronger than servant, but weaker than slave is needed. Something meaning semi-permanent employee without legal or economic freedom. Although servant comes the closest, no single English word is adequate, perhaps because no comparable institution exists in modern Western society. Now I say all that because when, again, when Peter's going to talk here about slaves and masters, servants and masters, um, he is in no way condoning uh, the evil slave trade that has went on in the past, but that quite honestly uh, still exists today. Just this past week, I was listening to a podcast by, uh, where they were interviewing Gary Haugen, who is the president and founder and CEO of International Justice Mission. Uh, this is a, an organization that, that we've supported in the past. Uh, several years ago, we, ran a, uh, we hosted a 5K and a half marathon as a church um, uh, to raise money, and we sent all the proceeds to IJM. International Justice Mission, uh, but in that in that interview I was listening to this past week, um, again there there are 40 million people uh, enslaved throughout the world today. More people exist in slavery today, right now uh, as we sit here this morning, uh, than were ever enslaved during the entire transatlantic slave trade um, in the 17 and 18 hundreds. And so uh, again, I'm just saying all this because the Bible is definitely uh, against this. Just to give you a, a verse of Scripture, Exodus 21:16, which talks about regulations again, for slaves and servants, but again, not in the same way we think of it. But the Bible says this in Genesis 21, 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Makes it pretty plain that the Bible is in no way uh, condoning or for people being enslaved uh, to another um, in the sense of an overbearing uh, taskmaster uh, that, that treats them then less than human. So I know that's a lot of, a lot of historical context there, but I just wanted to uh, start out there just so that we understand as we begin to read here what Peter, what Peter is talking about. Because he's addressing um, a big part of society— and a big part of culture. Um, A lot of the study that I've done said that probably as many as one-third of the entire population of the Roman Empire were slaves. Um, It was just part of the economic system, and many people were slaves because they chose to be, uh, because this was a way that they could uh, hire themselves out for life to somebody else and work for them and know that they were going to get compensated um, and and be able to take care of their family. Now, understanding that context, without question, uh, it's really not much of a leap as we talk about this this morning to apply it to employees and employers and the places where most of us work. Uh, Although, again, the historical context and um, it's not exactly apples to apples, uh, it's not in any way misusing the text to apply it uh, to those, that area of life, which is quite honestly where most of us are going to spend the majority of our days here on earth, right? If you work 40 hours a week, 40 to 60 hours a week uh, for 40 years or so, you're going to spend somewhere between 83,000 and 124,000 hours in the workplace, okay? Now, I don't know if that's depressing or not for you, but I'm, so those are, that's just the numbers, okay? But if you work 40 hours a week, for 40 years, you're going to spend roughly 83,000 hours of your life uh, that God has given you on this planet in the workplace. You work for 60 hours a week, you're going to spend more like 124,000 hours um, at work. And here's Peter's primary concern as he talks about this his primary concern is that the gospel not just be acknowledged, but that it be lived out, that it be applied to the lives of these folks that he's writing to, but as well as us this morning, in the place where we will spend most of our adult lives living and moving and interacting with people and accomplishing different goals and tasks. He wants us to be so rooted in the gospel that that is how the mission of God spreads. Folks, one of the most amazing things, if you ever take time to study it, is the spread of the early church that it was literally a couple hundred people in this little outpost of the Roman Empire in, in and around Palestine, modern-day Jerusalem, and that it spread by the middle of the third century, it spread to all of the Roman Empire. And there's no way to tell this for sure, and statistics are all over the place on this, so I don't know for sure, but there are some estimates that say that it was even as high as up to 50 60% of the Roman Empire was Christian. I think that's probably a little bit high, but again, they're they're all over the place. But even if it's 25% from just simply a few hundred out of 60 million people in the Roman Empire, it's incredible how it spread. Let me tell you how it didn't spread. The gospel did not spread by Peter, James, and John getting together and saying, you know what we need to do? We need to call Billy Graham and have a stadium crusade. That's what's going to win them over. It's not what happened. The way that the gospel spread to every nook and cranny of the Roman Empire was by individual no-name Christians. By no-name, I mean people that are never mentioned in the scriptures, that history has forgotten about, but that heaven will remember forever. Normal people like you and I that lived their lives day in and day out in the workplace, in the world, amongst the people that they came in contact with, that they lived it for the glory of Jesus Christ. They lived all of their lives as disciples. That there was not just Sunday morning Christianity. That this call to follow Christ was all-consuming. And they applied the gospel to every area of their life, especially the area of where they worked and the people that they came in contact with and the way that they lived their lives, even, and not just even, but especially when things got difficult. How many of you have ever faced difficulty at work? Yes, anybody? If you've never faced difficulty at work, let me know where that is. I might fill out an application. Um, But if you have ever faced difficulty at work, uh, Peter is going to address this morning um, in kind of a general way, but an important way, how we are to act and how we are to respond. And so let me just finally get to the text here and, and read it and explain it a little bit. And then I want to go back and point, go back through and point out three things that I believe, uh, three truths that will help us fuel our endurance um, as we seek to live the lives, the life of a disciple at work before a watching world. The first Peter chapter 2, verse 18, servants, be subject to your master's with all respect. Now we saw this last week, this word subject, that just like we're to subject ourselves to the ruling authorities, and when we broke that down, the case that I made, and so I won't spend a lot of time on this because I, I unpacked this last week, but, but that idea of being subject, it's the idea of obeying, blessing, and honoring. That whoever's over us in authority, that we want to obey them as best we can, so long as it does not cause us to personally sin or to go against what we believe God is calling us to do, but that we obey them, that we be a blessing, and that we show honor. Or here, the, the word that Peter uses is that we be subject to masters with all respect. That we honor them. That's what he has for us. That's how we live as disciples um, before this watching world. Not just of bosses, but of fellow employees, of fellow servants. He says, not only to the good and the gentle. Now, it, it's, I mean, you should want to serve your boss well if you have a good boss. Okay. But Peter's going to say here that we not only bless, honor, and obey the good bosses, but we also seek to obey, bless, and honor the bad bosses. It says not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Verse 19, 4. This is a gracious thing. It is a gracious thing. And the idea here um, is is it's the idea of just like, like, like a gift, that God is watching over it. And he is pleased to honor this. Again, you're not, we don't earn anything in the kingdom, but God does reward us, okay? Um, and he gives reward here. He's going to give extra grace to when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So when things are not going well, when your boss is not treating you fairly, when you feel that you've gotten passed over for a, for a promotion, or when the workplace environment is just kind of Junkie, um, uh in an emotional way because of just all the negativity that's going on, and a lot of that comes from, from bad leadership uh, in the workplace. We're to endure, we're to stay the course, um, and even when we suffer, even when we're talked about. Uh, and has anybody ever experienced gossip in the workplace? Anybody? <laughs> yes, pretty common. Gossip in the workplace that we don't engage in it that we don't jump in, that we don't be like everybody else, but that we continue, not just our bosses, but everybody we work with, obey, bless, and honor. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering. It says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, if you mess up and you get in trouble, you don't, you know, boast or brag and be like, well, they're just being mean to me because I'm a Christian. No, they're being mean to you because you're a moron. Um, sorry, that might have been a little too harsh, but like you be, you know, so like, like we're, we're not to be punished. like we all mess up, but even when we do, we're to be honest about it, humble, but we're to stand, we're to be an example, we're to be light. He says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing, there he uses that term again, this is a gracious thing. But God is watching over this, and it's precious. It's the idea of being precious to God in his sight. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And now the rest of the passage is just, again, um, Peter's applying the gospel, but here he just, he he can't stop just speaking about the gospel itself and about what Jesus has done. And so now finishing out the chapter, he's going to again remind them of the good news of what Christ has done. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. In all of life, God wants us to live the life of a disciple. Discipleship is a holistic thing, guys. Discipleship cannot be just a program that you're a part of. Discipleship cannot be just what you do on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday nights or when you meet in your small group or your small church or whatever. Discipleship is all of life. Jesus, if he has saved you, he has made you a disciple. And all of your life, all of your life belongs to him. And you now exist for his honor and for his glory. And this is how he intends to spread the gospel, that not just by the good things that we do, but by the good things that we do in the midst of difficulty, when we're pressed, when we're squeezed, when things get hard, that we, as you saw here, that we endure, that we persevere in continuing to do good, okay? So three things, that I just want to go back through here and just point out from the text, three truths uh, that hopefully will help fuel your endurance, to the glory of God in your workplace, um, or to say it another way, that we would all just truly live as God calls us to live as disciples of Jesus Christ. Number one, when you're mistreated at work or anywhere else, or anywhere else, here's the first, first truth to fuel your soul. Number one, God sees it. God sees it. He sees your mistreatment and he cares deeply. At the end of verse 20, Again, he says, but if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in what? In the sight of God. Guys, God is the God who sees. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but this is actually one of the names for Yahweh, for Almighty God in the Old Testament. One of the names is El Roy, that he is the God who sees. And interestingly enough, that name is spoken uh, first and foremost by a slave, a slave named Hagar. In Genesis chapter 16, uh, you have what's going on in Genesis at this time, kind of this, this big story of Abraham, who's the father of our faith. And if you've ever heard of Abraham, uh, Abraham uh, and Sarah, his wife, they were barren. They could not have kids. Uh, but the way God rolls is he loves to take that which is weak and that which is kind of uh, forgotten about and that, uh, those people who we think that God could never use. And those are the exact people that he likes to use. And so God comes to uh, Abraham and Sarah Um, in Genesis chapter 12, and even though they're barren and even though they're just kind of like this little ghetto tribe wandering around around in the middle of nowhere, God says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you great and I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing and you will become a mighty nation. And so then the story begins of of God's working in their life, God actively making the choice to step down and to work in Abram's life and to draw him to himself, even though Abram had done absolutely nothing to deserve it or to warrant it. And so God begins to work in their life, uh, but Abram has a lot that God needs to sanctify and that, he needs, and that he needs to work out. And so, you know, you're several years into now this promise that God has given to Abraham that he's going to give him a son and that someday he's going to have all these descendants, as many as uh, the sand on the seashore and as many as the stars in the sky, he tells him. And so about 15 years into this promise or whatever, uh, Abraham and Sarah still don't have any kids, even though God's promised it, and uh, he's uh, in his 80s, uh, Sarah's uh, not much younger, and um, uh, they're just ready to, ready to kind of give up. And so they come up with their own plan. And their plan is is that, again, uh, not that the Bible ever condones it, but it was part of the culture back in the day is that they had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And so Sarah come, actually comes up with this plan. She's like, "You know, we're tired of waiting around on the promises of God. God said he's going to give us a child. Um, but, uh, you know, I just can't wait any longer. Why don't you go in to my servant, my maidservant, Hagar, and have a kid by her? Um, and again, if that sounds a little bit messed up, it was. <laughs> it was. The Bible does not, this is kind of just a little bit of an aside here, but the Bible does not shrink back at all from the brokenness of humanity including those people in the Bible that we consider to be heroes of our faith, is that when the Bible says that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that should bring great hope to our souls. <laughs> because we should be thinking, if God could use these guys, he could use, he could use me. But so this is what happens, and, they, and Abraham goes into Hagar, and, and uh, uh, she uh, becomes pregnant, and as a kid, and then finally in Genesis chapter 16, um, Now Sarah regrets having ever done this, and they treat Hagar terribly. Again, these people that God had called that God was going to use, they're they're living in sin. They're not living rightly. Um, And so she gets mad at Hagar now because she's pregnant uh, uh, with her husband's kid, even though it was her idea to begin with. Um, and, And it says, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you, or I'm sorry. Um, and so what happens is... I jumped ahead there. But what happens is, is that um, they, Sarah mistreats Hagar. And so Hagar uh, kind of runs away out into the wilderness. And then the Lord comes to her. The Lord comes to Hagar, this slave out in the wilderness. Um, and she sits down by the spring out in the desert. And the Lord says to her, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over all against and over all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her here. And again, whenever they, they give these specific names to God in the Old Testament, it's expressing something about the nature and character of God. And so she called the name of the Lord, or Yahweh, but that she calls him here. She says, you are the God who sees. You are El Roy, you are the God who sees. For she said, truly, I have been seen by him who looks after me. Now what's the point? Here's the point. Is that thousands of years ago, there was this little slave, Hagar, who was shamefully treated, whom the world cared nothing about, even the people of God, even Abraham and Sarah, this couple that God was using uh, to carry out his plan. Um, And she's mistreated, and she flees away, and nobody cares about her. The idea, as you read the text, is that she flees from Abraham and Sarah. They're not running after her. Say let her go. But God shows up, and God sees her, and God cares. And what I believe Peter's saying here back in the text when he says that this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, that if, guys, if you're going to live as Christ calls you to live in your workplace when there's immoral stuff going on, when there's unethical stuff going on, when there's gossip or when, you know, you're being mistreated or passed over for a promotion that you deserve um, because you stand your ground and because you are trying to live as Christ would have you to live, even if nobody else sees it, guys, the first truth, truth that you have to remind yourselves of is this, is that God sees it. God sees it. And not just in the workplace, but wherever you're at, wherever you live and move and wherever you have your being. Guys, God sees every single moment of your life. Um, Paul, in both Ephesians and Colossians, says something very similar. He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, that when we know God sees us, we then work as unto the Lord. Not to mean bosses who are over us, in Colossians chapter 3, he says almost the same thing. Whatever you do, do heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Know that, you're, know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That every moment of every day, guys, as you go to work, it is an opportunity to worship. When you do it, knowing that God sees you and knowing that you're in the sight of God and doing it as unto him and not just as unto man. Secondly... Um, the second truth to help fuel our endurance at work is this: is that, guys, this is what we're called to do. This is what we're called to do. Now, you may think, well, that's kind of a Captain Obvious type of statement, Eric. You've already been telling me that. But I just want you to look how explicitly Peter says this in the text. Again, verse 21, for to this you have been called, that God has called us to suffer, that God has called us at times to endure in the midst of difficulty. Now listen to me. We live in America, okay? The land of the free. And you're free in one sense to work wherever you want. And I pray that God would have you in a place where you feel that you can go to work every day and be fulfilled and, um, you know, and all that. And that, things, and that things go well, okay? But back in this day, it wasn't that easy. If you were a bond servant, it wasn't like you could just, uh, you know, fill out an application somewhere else and go and go somewhere else. It's that you had, to, you had to stick with it. Now, we don't have to apologize for many of the great freedoms that we have and, and the freedom to be able to choose what kind of uh, vocation we want to pursue and where we want to live and where we want to work and all that. But here's what the Bible does call us to is that it calls us to, in whatever we choose to do and where we choose to go, that we choose it along with Christ. That we don't make these decisions just unilaterally, just on our own. But that in everything, we're seeking to follow Jesus. And that when he calls us to be at a place that is difficult, this is where our freedom sometimes betrays us, is that, guys, sometimes we run. Sometimes we give up. Sometimes we just flee to that, not because we feel God calling us to leave, but because it's easier. And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with switching jobs if you get a better opportunity. My my intent and the Bible's intent in everything, though, is that in every single decision that you make, that you make it with Christ, prayerfully, by His Spirit, getting into His Word, seeking wisdom, ultimately for His glory. Does that make sense? That's what he wants for each one of us. That is what being a disciple uh, requires. And Peter's reminding us here, again, very explicitly, that you, guys, you've been called to this. You've been called to endure, to endure difficulty for the glory, for the glory of God. And again, I would argue that this is how the gospel went forth primarily in the Roman Empire. So people didn't run from things that were difficult. But when they were mistreated, they continued to, to act like Jesus, and to obey, bless, and honor those around him. Finally, uh, and again, there's some overlap here, but the third truth that I see in the text um, to give us endurance in the midst of suffering, especially suffering in the workplace, uh, is that this is what it means to be like Christ. This is what it means to be like Christ. Again, verse 21, look at it closely. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. An example. This word example, <laughs> in the Greek, it's, uh, I'll probably mispronounce it, but it's hypographo. And the idea here is, how many of you have like young elementary age school kids? Anybody? You know, and they're like, I don't know, kindergarten, first, second grade, when they're just learning their letters. And they'll bring home those little papers where it's like, you know, you're going to write the letter A over and over. And you'll have this, and so you'll first have like a little dotted A, kind of in light gray that they're to trace over. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, somebody, yeah. That, that, that literally is the picture, that, that's the word that Peter uses here when he says example, is that we look at the life of Christ, we look at the way he lived his life, and we say, I want to be just, just like that. I, want to, I don't know what letter I'm making right now, but, um, but I, want to, I want to trace, let's make an A, there we go. I, I, want to, I want to trace that. I want to be just like him. And see, my question to you this morning is, is that the type of, maybe, maybe you've never heard of that exact picture before, but is that the type of picture that you have? Is that what you think of when you think about your life as a disciple? That in everything, in every decision that you make, whether it's where you live, what car you drive, how much you spend, how you budget, to the place you work and the people you serve in that workplace. Are you seeking to be just like Christ, to trace over his life? That's what Peter calls us to. This is what it means, guys, to be like Jesus. And so because Peter sets it up like that and says this is his example, trace it, And then he just stops, and as I pointed out earlier, and now he's just going to remind us again of some of the highlights of Christ's life. And guys, I I don't really need to expound on this a whole lot. I don't need to go into the Greek. I don't need to like, um, uh, you know, really give much more explanation other than maybe just a few comments as we just read through this. Is that this is what it looks like for you to be a disciple, to follow that example, to trace his life. Verse 22. He committed no sin. Now we're all out on that one, right? We're going to sin, but again, we don't do it willfully. We don't do it flippantly. We don't think that God just winks at it and thinks that it's okay. We look at the life of Christ and we look at his holiness and his purity and say, I want to be like that. I want to walk in the light as he's in the light. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. If Jesus would have had a job in a factory uh, or in any other place where there's kind of a hierarchy and he, he wouldn't have told lies to climb his way up the corporate ladder. He wouldn't have been deceitful. He wouldn't have started rumors about other people that he was in competition with for maybe that next job promotion. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, when he was talked about, when people gossiped about him, when they told lies about him, when he was reviled, that's what it means to be reviled, he did not revile in return. Gossip in the workplace, Christ wouldn't do it. Don't you do it. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When we're threatened, when people come at us, again, I've admitted to you before that when it comes to like fight or flight, I'm all fight. It's not always a good thing, <laughs> I'm not saying that as like it's something that's commendable. But when difficulty comes, Christ, he, he didn't threaten. But what did he continue to do? But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That there was a purpose in his suffering. Again, one of the things that's difficult about suffering, especially suffering that we think that nobody else sees, that nobody else recognizes, that nobody else cares about, remember, God sees it, but also remember this, God has a purpose in it. And guys, it it seemed even to Jesus' closest followers that when he went to the cross, remember the two guys on, on, on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24? They had followed Jesus, and, you know, they'd kind of given up their lives to go and follow him, but then he was crucified, and, and then the, the risen Jesus finds him a few days later, you know, walking out on this road, and he's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they don't know that it's Jesus. And they're like, well, what, what you haven't heard what's happened? We had hoped this guy had been the Savior, but I guess not. And Jesus has to explain to him that, no, 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 this was all part of the plan. Guys, in whatever difficulty you're facing in your life right now, and listen, I'm not just talking about workplace now, but no matter what it is, God is sovereign over it and he has a purpose in it. Your suffering, your difficulty, it is not wasted. It doesn't matter what it is. It is not wasted. And in Christ's case, the suffering that he endured, it was for our good that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we would live lives that are different. He says, by his wounds, you have been healed. Everybody say, have been healed. Have been healed. Guys, you know that in Christ, because of what he's done, if you've believed in him, But right now, even though we don't feel like it because, you know, our bodies are wasting away and, you you know, we may have some sickness and death and even parts of our soul, our emotions and our mind, our thoughts and stuff, they get tore up. But in Christ Jesus, that's past tense, you are healed, you are whole in him. Stop thinking of yourself all the time as just a victim. Although, please hear me, I know that terrible things have been done to some of you, to many of us. In Christ Jesus, he offers you wholeness and healing because of the suffering that he went through. And if you come to him and entrust yourself to him, just as Jesus entrusted himself to the Father, you too can be made whole. Verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. Again, the, the idea that Peter's playing out here is that you have these earthly overseers, these earthly masters. But Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the chief master. He's the chief overseer. And he is, and he's caring for your soul. Worship to me, you can come up and we're going to close. There's a, there's a very vivid picture in the Old Testament. And it's found in Exodus chapter 21, which is where I quoted from earlier about how God hates people that buy and sell people and treat them like property, um, and how they should be put, how they should be put to death, um, uh, because it's evil and it's wicked. But there's another image, and again, this is a little bit hard for us to get because of the, the different cultural contexts, but, uh, it's this idea of the bond slave, which is what he's talking about here today, and how, um, You could, and I mentioned this earlier, that back in this day, there were many people that would choose to give themselves for life uh, to a master, to somebody that they knew was going to take care of them. And in Exodus chapter 21, God gives instruction now to these people that used to be um, slaves in the the wicked sense, in the sense that God hates in, in Egypt and by Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. But he's trying to give them regulations now for how to live. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 5, he says, But if a, if a slave plainly says, so a slave could say this, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an all, and he shall be his slave forever. Now you're like, what is happening here? <laughs> Here's what would happen. Is that somebody, if they had a master that they loved, they could say, I want to give myself to you for life. I know that you'll take care of me. I know that you'll provide. I know that you love me, and I, in return, I love you. And so what he's describing here, because like, what's with the awl and what's with the doorpost? You know what an all is? Kind of like a little almost like an ice pick, very pointy. And what they would do is they they would take him to the doorpost and this is like, you know, if you wonder how they pierced ears back in the day, here it is. Um, And they would put their earlobe up against that doorpost, that hardwood, and the master would take this all and pop, pop, just real quick, put it through. You'd stick this little, and 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 they'd pierce their ear. But here's the thing, okay? I know it's kind of a weird image for us, but here's the point. Is that, a bond servant a slave could choose out of love for the master to give themselves to that person and they would want everybody to know about it with an outward sign that they no longer belonged to themselves but that they had chosen to belong to another now how do you think that made that master look in that society when he had people, if you have a master had several people going around with, with his, like, marking his special earring that he would put in or whatever, people would think, man, that master must be good. That master must love his servants. That master must take good care of them. That master must be worth giving himself totally to. Guys, the most frequently repeated word in the New Testament to describe our relationship with Christ that Paul and Peter use over and over and over is the word doulos. It's the word for slave. It's the word for bondservant. So guys, what God calls us to in the workplace is to have an outward sign. Not talking about an ear piercing. Not talking about getting a tattoo. Anything like that. But I'm saying it would be evident that they belong to another. And the question For us this morning, as we talk about applying the gospel to all of life, is guys, is it evident? Is it evident? Can people just look at your life and know that you belong to another? That you belong to Jesus? That you weren't coerced into it, but that said, I I give you my heart. I love you. That's what God calls us to. And guys, that's how the gospel is going to spread. It's how it spread back then, and now it's going to spread in our day as well. Okay, so stand with me. We're going to take communion together. If you're visiting with us, <coughs> um, I want to invite you to take this with us, but I also want to invite you just to search your hearts as we take it, as we do every week. And this morning, I would, guys, I would ask, and I'm going to pray right now in just a moment too, that you would search about, that you would search your heart, and you would ask the Lord to search your heart, and I want you to think about your life at work. I want you to think about your life in the community, in the places that you live. Can people look at your life and know because of the way that you live and because of the way that you endure and because of the way that you continue to honor, bless, and obey, can they know for certain that you belong to another, that you have a master who's worth following? And if you say, boy, I don't know if they know, then come this morning in repentance, partaking again of the life of Christ, remembering his sacrifice and saying, Lord Jesus, pierce my ear. Do whatever, Lord, take me and make it evident that outwardly I belong to you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood in the new covenant. As often as you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me.